So we are reading this morning from Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we are um, finishing up a series today. Um, we are starting our Advent series next week, but uh, this week we finish uh, our series that we've really entitled The Five Solas. Um, and so for those of you that uh, are new and haven't heard the rest of them, uh, sola is really a Latin word that means alone. And we looked at these kind of five statements of the Reformation. Um, this is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And so we looked at these, these five rallying cries of the Reformation. Um, and really the Reformation came from the Reformers, um, kind of led by Martin Luther and others, um, because the church had kind of gone a bit wayward. Um, it had uh, really taken the gospel and added a bunch of things to it. And so uh, there was uh, a German priest, Martin Luther, who nailed these kind of theses to the, the door um, at a church in Wittenberg, trying to spark a debate or a conversation, um, trying to bring the church back into faithfulness to the gospel. Um, and so the first week we looked at Sola Scriptura, um, that it is by Scripture alone that God reveals himself to us, and it is Scripture alone that is our highest authority for life and living in that way. It's not Scripture along with tradition or along with uh, what the Pope or priest or whoever kind of said, different councils. Uh, really, our creeds are only as useful as so much as they actually summarize the Bible. Uh, and so it is by Scripture alone that is our highest authority. Um, and we looked at really our salvation or how we're made right before God is really through grace alone. <clears throat> it's not through our own works. And so the church was teaching grace, but alongside of that was different works that you had to do to add to um, your salvation. Um, the third week we looked at this grace comes to us through our faith alone. And really that both our grace, the grace and faith by which we believe are both gifts of God. Um, that it is through our faith alone. And that all of this consummates uh, in the object of our faith, Christ. Um, that it is Christ alone by which we are saved. Um, and so we'll, you'll see allusions to all these things as we unpack today. But today is kind of the, the climax, the peak, if you will. Um, if we were building a building, the foundation would have been sola scriptura. The three pillars, uh, sola fide, sola gratia, sola, uh, solus Christus. And then the roof of the building, the, the pinnacle, the peak of it all is today. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so that's what I want us to talk about this morning. We're going to look at the glory of God and how it is, the glory of God is our hope. Uh, our hope, the very glory of God. Um, and uh, we'll look at this a little bit more. I want to, if you look at the last couple verses in what was read today from our reading, through him we have also obtained access by faith, sola fide, into this grace, sola gratia, in which we stand, the hope of glory of God. 
In verse 5, and this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And so this morning, if we're talking about hope, this hope of glory, the, the God's glory, it's right for us to just stop and pause and ask the question, as we do often, what is our hope in? What are you hoping in this morning? What is your hope? What do you even hope for the rest of the day? I'm hoping a nap is involved at some point. I don't know if that'll be realized today or not. My guess is probably not. Um, <clears throat> but what is our ultimate foundational kind of hope in? What is it that you're drawing your hope for um, your purpose and meaning and joy in life? Sometimes we look to that in a significant other, right? I hope, my hope is really in finding a, a spouse or somebody that I can spend the rest of my life with. Or my hope is if I can hit a certain kind of education, because that then parlays that hope into a certain kind of career that will give me security and comfort and whatever it is. But the hope that we speak of this morning isn't a hope in the kind of like, I hope I get whatever it is that you hope for for Christmas, and a, a hope that might kind of happen. The Bible in Hebrews 6.11 says that we have a full assurance of hope. So our hope is, isn't based on a maybe. Our hope is based on something that is a fact. It is a reality. It's just yet to come. It's a full assurance of hope. It's a confident, a confident expectation of the good things that God has promised to us and has secured for us already. And so how then do we hope? What is the ground or the reason of our hope? And really, the, the we, we, I just want to give us two, a, few, a few quick answers this morning, um, and then we'll move into the kind of the main point. Um, the first one then is, is our grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16. It says, Now we, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. How? Through grace. The grace that we spoke of last week. The grace that God has given to us. The grace that he opens up our eyes to. This faith that we have secured in Christ Jesus is our hope. We may hope because God is a God of grace to us. We also have a reason to hope in the gospel. This is uh, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. So Paul is writing to Christians, and he said, You weren't always Christians. You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He, speaking of Jesus, is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, not shifting from the hope of the what? Gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. Our hope is in the grace that God gives us. Our hope is in the gospel. You see how these things are all intertwined. And then we see then our third reason for hope is in new birth. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Not by, not by our own works. By grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? Saved from our sin, but saved to what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. This is the foundation and basis of our hope. This grace 
This gospel has produced in us, he has caused us to be reborn into then, fourthly, these promises of God. We have this hope. How is it sustained in that? What is it our hope is our foundation on this morning? It kind of culminates in the promises of God. In Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The scriptures are filled with the history and the promises of God. God and how he's worked in time past through his people. The covenants that he has made. The new covenant that he establishes in Jesus. And the coming consummation of that covenant. And we find all of that written in the scriptures. Sola Scriptura. These things are the basis that we would find encouragement. That we would have hope through the scriptures. It's why one of our, our, our values is that we want a culture that the word dwells among us. Why? Because it is there that we find Jesus. It is there that we find the gospel. It is there that we find the basis and encouragement of our hope. And so this morning, I want us to look at the context of our hope. That all of these things um, find their fulfillment and explanation in the glory of God. From our text this morning, Romans 5, 1 and 2. I've therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what I want us to look at this morning. I want to focus our attention on the last part of that, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And we're going to look at kind of three truths from that as our main kind of uh, body of teaching this morning. And um, I want to put your mind at rest that the vast majority of the sermon is the first point. <laughs> so if you're like, man, we are just now getting to point two, it's okay. The last two points go very quickly. Most of our, our, our sermon this morning will be in, in point one. Okay, and so let's look at the first one. Um, our kind of first point is that the glory of God is exceedingly, supremely awesome. All right, we're, all, we're, we're, we're getting warmed up. All right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there should be some amens throughout today because this is really all of what we should be. Uh, everything is culminating. This is a sermon that all other sermons will, will extract from. Um, the, the person who's probably been the most influential in me understanding um, the glory of God and its supreme awesomeness um, is still alive today. Um, I actually named my daughter's middle name after him is John Piper. And so if you've not read any of his work, um, he is a man obsessed with the glory of God. Um, and so I want to look at a few verses that, um, that he's actually helped me think through this morning um, in this. We're going to look at God's um, great and amazing glory this morning. If, we, um, if you've ever gone through a catechism um, before, the very first question of a catechism is just a set of questions and answers that um, help us uh, learn significant truths. Right? So the catechism for Christian catechisms, uh, the very first question is, what is uh, the chief end of man? What is our purpose? Why are we here? Why are we created? Why do we exist? Why do you get up and go to work in the morning? 
And the answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, John Piper would say it's actually to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That our very purpose in life, the very reason that we have uh, breath, the very reason that God has created us is soli deo gloria, for his glory alone. He's created us in his image to be image bearers of him. And in that way, there's something about his glory that we get to partake in. And so we're going to look at several different kind of verses um, to help us understand this. Uh, because I, I actually sat down and thought, how do, you, how, do you define, how do you define God's glory? And man, it's tough. It's hard because it's, it's so deep. It's so complex. It's so rich. And so let's just let the Bible do that for us. And we're just going to look at different facets of this diamond uh, this morning uh, to, to, to hope and to realize. And, and I hope stir our affections and gratitude and thanksgiving for God, that the glory of God is exceedingly and supremely awesome. And so uh, let's look at Romans eleven thirty six. Here, God is going to show us that his glory is exceedingly awesome by saying that it is eternal. So Romans eleven thirty six. from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To him be glory forever. The greatness of God's glory is seen in the fact that it will never end. What else can you say that about? What else is that durable? Whatever, whatever, what else is that permanent? That God, because he is eternal, his glory has existed as forever. It has pre-existed all that we know as human beings and will outlast all that we currently know in this, in this current form of the world that we live in. God's glory is exceedingly amazing and awesome because it has always been and always will be a world without end. Secondly, in uh, 1 Peter 1, these verses should be coming on the screen because there's a, there's a lot of them. So um, I want us to see. Secondly, God shows us the greatness of his glory by contrasting it with the kind of frail and temporary uh, glory of the world. We understand glory in, in kind of human terms, don't we? We see an athlete finish a race um, and, they, and they kind of get glory on, on the podium as they're awarded uh, their medal. Um, we uh, ascribe kind of glory uh, to celebrities in a weird and kind of strange way. But this is what the Bible says about our earthly glory. It says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Our, our sense of glory, our sense of earthly human, human glory is all fleeting it is fading. It is finite. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Flesh in this verse simply refers to the things that aren't spiritual. They're temporal. All the accomplishments of, of natural man are like grass, all of their glory. You think about hum, humanity and all the amazing things that we've done. All our engineering glory. The buildings that we've built. The rockets that we have sent to other planets. We've stepped on other planets. All our engineering glory. All our architectural glory. All our artistic glory. I love art. 
There's art that's deeply moving, right? Art can communicate things in ways that uh, words and, uh, can't. Music, things like this. All of that kind of artistic glory. All of our atomic glory. Harnessing the very atoms of, uh, of creation. All our computerized and technological glory. All of these things are like a dandelion. <sighs> Gone. Compared to God's permanent glory. C.S. Lewis um, wrote a sermon, and it was called The Weight of Glory. And he said, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is ours, their life is to ours is like that of a gnat, like a wee midgy. It's just, it's, it's, it's incomparable. And if the great glories of the world are to us the life of a gnat, how much greater must be the God of glory in whom we live and move and have our being. Thirdly then, in Colossians 1.11, God shows his greatness, the greatness of his glory by speaking of its might and its power. In Colossians 1.11, may you be strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 turns it around and speaks of the glory of his might. And the point isn't, isn't any different. The glory of God shines forth in great power. And the power of God exhibits itself in great glory. If we want to think about the glory of God in its kind of proper proportions. Um, the prophet Isaiah helps us do this in Isaiah 40. He says that God measured the seas in the hollows of his hand. I was watching Blue Planet last night. That's some glory worship inducing television. They go down to the bottom and they're like, this stuff happens and we don't have a clue why. And the ultimate answer, it's there to induce worship. It's there to reveal the glory of God because he measured the seas in the hollows of his hands. He weighed the mountains in scales. Daniel 4, at the end of the days, Nebuchadnezzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar coming to his senses. He says, I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? His glory is amazing because his power is wrapped up in that. Who can stay the hand of the Lord? Who can question God? Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the power of his word. He holds the entire fabric of the universe together. All the mysterious things that we don't have a clue of. God in the glory of his power understands and holds together because he created them all. God's glory is beyond our imagination. It's beyond our comprehension. And his power is only one expression of his glory. It's just one aspect of his glory. How exceedingly and supremely awesome is it? Is he? Fourthly, in Romans 6, 4, he makes the greatness of his glory known by telling us that it was his glory, it was by his glory that he did these greatest acts of power and love in history. 
Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's a phrase we use next week as we baptize people, right? It's why we baptize the way we baptize. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. And how has the resurrection happened? How did God raise Jesus from the dead? He did it by his glory. He raised Jesus from the dead by the glory of the Father. If the eternity of millions hangs in the greatest act of love, the, re- the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that happens because of the glory of God, what does that say then? It tells us that his glory is exceedingly, supremely awesome. Awesome, a word we kind of throw around a lot, right? Everything is awesome. Literally a song wrote, wrote, wrote about that. That's how ubiquitous the word has become. We mock it now. But think about the, the whole word, if you deconstruct it, if something is awesome, it, it draws out awe. Like we stand in awe of it. And so pizza really isn't awesome. It's pretty good. Some's better than others. And as much as I love it, none of it's made me stand in awe. What have you stood in awe of? When I think about that, when you really stand in awe, like these breathtaking moments that you have, they're all connected to the glory of God. You look at grand vistas of mountains and sunsets and oceans. You watch things like the blue planet and you just stand in awe. These things declaring the glory of God. Next in Romans 9, God sinks kind of the greatness of his glory into our mind by referring to it over and over again um, as the wealth or the riches of his glory. That's something we can understand. That's something we naturally as people stand in awe of. We love wealth, right? We love wealth because it's connected to power. It's connected to all all sorts of stuff. Romans 9, 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, that's not a happy verse. Let's keep reading. What if God, desiring to do that, he endured with much patience with these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God is, his glory is is made known to us the riches of his glory, the worth of his glory. He compares it to wealth and says the ultimate purpose of all of history is to make the greatness of that wealth known to us, to us, the vessels of mercy prepared for glory. All so much bound up in that, isn't there? God's wrath, his power, his mercy, all of these things 
making known to us the riches of His glory. They reveal to us the kind of God He is. Maybe you're here this morning going, well, I'm not sure I want that kind of a God. This wrathful kind of God that gets angry. But if we really draw that to its logical conclusion, don't you want a God who gets angry? Do you want a God who's so passive that nothing kindles his anger? Are there things that make you angry? I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. There are things that should make us angry. The word that we use, a biblical word, is justice. We get angry when there's injustice in the world, when people have been wronged, when people have been oppressed. Where do we even get those ideas and terms from? How do we know that there's a right or a wrong, a just and an unjust? They come from the, the, the riches of God's glory revealed to us. And God says, I will enact justice. I will enact justice. My wrath will be poured out. That's one way you will see my glory. But I want you to see the riches of my glory in that I will be patient. I, I will be patient. One day I will enact justice ultimately and finally. But I also want you to see the riches of my glory in that my mercy is also available to those vessels of mercy which have been prepared beforehand. And what have they been prepared for? Glory. To share in the glory of God. How rich, how wealthy, how unlimited resources of God's glory. Sixthly, God highlights his glory by telling us the joy of experiencing it will, will so outweigh the sufferings of this life that it's not even comparable. Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Andrew was right to to say in a room with a crowd this size, not all of us have come in here this morning ready to rejoice because life is amazing. Some of us have come in heavy-hearted and burdened. Some of us are still grieving. But no matter how much we suffer in life, the joy of the glory of God will be so great as to make you feel as though your years and decades of suffering were as nothing. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? That's not always easy in the midst of suffering. But we cling to what we know to be true in the light, in those moments where we are in the dark. Continuing on from this idea in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he adds that the, the glory that we experience is a weight of glory. In 2 Corinthians uh, 4, for this light momentary affliction. Now, that can be offensive, right? If you're going through an affliction, you're like, this doesn't feel light, and it certainly doesn't feel momentary. It feels heavy and permanent. 
But he says this light momentary affliction is prepared, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're fleeting. They're temporary. And the things that are unseen are eternal. Namely, the glory of God. The glory of God is eternal and it's weighty. And by comparison, he says, our affliction then is momentary and light. And so we come with heaviness. You can carry your burdens that seem to be heavy and drag on and on. But the Lord teaches us that the glory of God is going to be so heavy. The imagery here is like scales. right? We've come, all of our afflictions that now seem heavy, weighty, eternal. When will this ever end, God? And God says, I'm going to set my glory on this side of the scale. And it's so weighty. That what happens? It just tips. This gets just shot into the air. It's just, it's light and temporary compared to the other side of the scale. And on our scale of joy and our scale of, of enjoyment, of, of pleasure on an eternal scale, God's glory will outweigh all these other things. Eight, in Second Thessalonians 1, 9. God helps us see that his glory is supremely, exceedingly awesome by telling us that great punishment in the day of judgment. What is the great punishment that we will receive for those that don't accept Jesus, who want to go their own way, who want to glory in their own and reject the glory of God? What is the greatest punishment that we receive? 2 Thessalonians 1.9. At the coming of Christ, unbelievers, it says, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The worst thing that can happen to you is to be eternally separated from the glory of God. All common grace removed. We feel the weight of death, don't we? We feel it when we lose people that we love. But how greater a tragedy is the grief going to be for the person who comes to the end of his days and has to say farewell to the glory of God forever, for eternity. What are the details of that? Is it a literal fire? Is it whatever it is? In some ways, those are ancillary to the primary punishment of being removed from the presence and glory of God. Whatever it is results in deep um, rebellion and regret against God, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't want to be removed from God's glory. Your heart was made to enjoy the glory of God. It is our real home. And without it, we will forever feel heartsick. We know that feeling, don't we? That heartsick feeling of never, of losing something, never to see it again. Now, for the Christian, we we grieve, but we grieve with hope because if that person's also a believer, we will see them again. The death isn't the end. Ninthly, in Revelation twenty-one, 
God pictures the greatness of his glory for us by showing us in the coming age, the glory of God will replace the very sun for our light. Revelation 21, this is the vision that John has of uh, the new earth, the new heaven, the new city. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. The temple in the Old Testament was the place where the presence of God was. He says, there wasn't a temple in the city. Why? Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. That Jesus himself will be present. That Jesus himself will be our temple. And the city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. The lamp is Christ himself. I don't know what that means. Exactly. (laughs) But I know that it, it somehow reveals to us that the immensity and brightness of our sun now, the one that will blind you if you stare into it too long, are reminders and symbols and shadows of the greatness and brightness of the glory of God. Someday we won't need these symbols and reminders for the real thing will swallow us up in its light. That's how great and awesome the glory of God is. Amazing. Next then, in Revelation 5. The Lord amplifies the greatness of his glory by revealing it to us in this amazing kind of setting of heavenly worship where it's held in its proper um, regard. We get a a vision, a, a peek into the very throne room of God. Revelation 5, he says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea, under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. What an amazing scene where the glory of God is rightly revered, rightly recognized, rightly declared, rightly ascribed. He gives us this glimpse into heavenly worship to make us feel the greatness of the Lord, this tremendous worth of his glory. It helps us understand what what our worship should be, rightly ascribing glory to God. It's why we sing the songs that we do. It's why we don't sing some of the songs we don't sing. And then finally in this point, Hebrews 1. Here we see the greatness of the glory of God. He says, He is the radiance. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The glory of God isn't some distant, ethereal, um, mysterious, kind of shroudy kind of thing. The Bible says if if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. 
we know what the moral character of this glory will be. It will be like Jesus. And Jesus was full of grace. He was full of truth. This is what the glory of God is. So when Paul says in Romans 5, 2, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he wants us to know and feel, experience, be confident in the glory of God, that it is exceedingly, supremely more valuable, more worth, more worthy, more awesome than anything else. If there's any wonder to be had, if there is any awe to have, if there is any admiration or fame or praise or applause, all of that belongs to the glory of God. Why? Because all other glory is like grass compared to God's. It withers, it dies. And so that's the first, my attempt at us trying to understand what the glory of God is. It is his very essence. Jesus is the exact imprint of it. It is powerful. It sustains the very universe. It's awe-inducing to us. The second thing I want us to see is the glory of God is a sure hope in Jesus Christ. We talked about our hope at the very beginning. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is not yet um, manifest in full, even though the heavens declare the glory of God, as the scripture tells us, even though Jesus himself is the, uh, the image and reflection of that glory. We get a foretaste. We get a foreshadowing. But there's so much more coming that we now live in hope of that. We wait. We wait for Christ. This is why we celebrate Advent and not just Christmas. Advent means coming or arrival. We enter into, uh, with the people of the Old Testament, this longing. The Old Testament prophets who would, who would cry out, How long, O Lord? How long must we wait? For them, they were waiting for the Messiah, for the first to come. We get to see a little more clearly now, but our, our longing, our angst, our hope is still in his second and final coming. Our hope, our waiting, our longing. We wait for Christ. We wait for righteousness. We wait for justice. We wait for the glory of God. But there's these three phrases in these verses that are really intended to give us strong confidence, the full assurance that we need in sharing in this glory. We don't wait and, uh, with a kind of, I hope it turns out okay, or I wonder if it's going to all be okay. We wait and know that the glory of God is our eternal inheritance. And so we see three phases, three phrases in, in the uh, text that we read this morning. The first is justified by faith. Second is peace with God. And then lastly, the grace in which we stand. If we're talking about hope, uh, Peter says that we as Christians should be prepared to give an answer when people ask about our hope. So something in our life that, that uh, invokes that kind of question. 
And when we're asked about our hope, our ultimate kind of hope, our ultimate kind of purpose, he says you should be ready to give an answer for that. So how should you give an answer to that? I think Paul, in these verses, would tell us, use these three phases, phrases. My hope is that I know I'm going to share in the glory of God because I'm justified by faith, because I have peace with God, and because I stand in the center of God's grace. Well, how do you get that? We answer with verse 2. Through Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. It's because of Jesus. It is by Christ alone that God acquitted me of all of my sins. He's made me right or justified as we sang this morning in his sight. I, I don't stand before him guilty anymore. I stand before him declared right, innocent, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, not my own. And because of Jesus... God is now reconciled to me. We are no longer enemies. Because of Jesus, I have access into his grace where I am safe and secure. This is how we know. This is how we know that he gives us justification. He gives us peace with God. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace. And so our hope in the glory of God is not built on some shaky foundation. It's built on the very character. It's, it's built on the very person and work of Jesus Christ himself. He is a sure foundation. He is something that we can put our hope in. Do you see how all these things come full circle? Do you see that this really is uh, the life of the Christian? That brings us to our, our kind of third and final point, which isn't really, it's, it's more of a, a response for us. The hope of the glory of God fills our heart with joy. It fills our heart with joy. We sing joy to the world. Um, this time of year. We believe that in our own hearts first, right? Joy to me. And the basis of that joy is not because uh, of the money I saved on Black Friday. The joy isn't, you know, a fireplace and warm Christmas cookies and, and the family together. Yes, that's all, that, 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 that's something that we can enjoy and revel in. But what happens when you don't have a family? What happens if you don't have a warm house? What happens if you don't have Christmas cookies? Then what? What happens if you don't even believe in Christmas? There has to be something more sure for our hope, for our joy, and it is the glory of God. The reason we can always rejoice in God isn't because life is easy. It isn't. Becoming a Christian doesn't make all your bad problems go away. Sometimes it gives you more. The reason is the glory of God is beyond all imagining and that Jesus Christ is a sure foundation. And so how do we do that? How do we rejoice? How do you rejoice in the glory of God? We could spend more time, but I just quickly want to give us two, two things uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. One way that we rejoice in the glory of God is by our motivations in life or our, or our purpose in life. 
One way that we do that is just admitting that life is not about me. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink, they were asking questions. Are we allowed to eat this? Are we allowed to do these sorts of things? And ultimately, he gives them some instructions. And he says, so whatever you eat, whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, right? That's, that's a pretty broad category of everything. Whatever we do, even in meaning, what seems like little meaningless things, our day-to-day life of eating and drinking, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. We do all to the glory of God. One way we rejoice in the glory of God is by actually living in light of the glory of God. All that we do now is directed to his glory. It's not about me. My, when I'm at my most sinful, when I'm at my most hard to live with, it's, it's generally because somewhere inside I think life's about me. And you're infringing on my comfort and my pleasure and my agenda right now and I don't want you to do that anymore. But when we live in light of God's glory, all that we do, we do to the glory of God. Parents, as we took vows this morning, all that you will do in raising your kids, we do to the glory of God. So we rejoice in that way. And then the second way is with gratitude and thanksgiving. If, if all of life is from God, if all of life is directed toward God, then we respond with gratitude and thanksgiving. I can't remember who it was, but someone, someone said, I wonder, they're like curious about atheism, and they're like, what does an atheist do when they feel gratitude and don't have anywhere to direct it to? Just grateful to be alive. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase what? Thanksgiving. And what does that Thanksgiving do? Where is it directed to? To the glory of God. As grace extends to more and more people, it may increase Thanksgiving to the glory of God. We respond out of grateful hearts. Um, Thursday uh, was Thanksgiving in America. Um, I think that's a good holiday in its original form. I mean, now it's kind of been twisted into this weird kind of like speed bump between Thanksgiving or, you know, Halloween and Christmas and it's Black Friday and people wrestle each other over TVs and Walmarts and all kinds of weird stuff. But like in its original kind of form and idea of, of we as a, as a people will stop working, we'll gather our families, we will feast. So fasting and feasting, both biblical ideas, we will feast and we will give thanks. But for the Christian, every day is Thanksgiving. Maybe not the feasting better. We'll all like have diabetes and stuff, but like, you know, we can have a heart of feasting. But in the fasting, in the feasting, whatever it is that we are giving thanks, we have hearts of gratitude. And that Thanksgiving increases to the glory of God. This is the life of a believer. You see how these things work. God reveals himself to us in the scriptures. He gives us grace and faith to respond into who Christ is. And that that recognition of what he has done in revealing himself to us, in saving us from ourselves, in saving us from himself, the, the judgment that we deserved 
that Christ took in our stead changes us. We are changed by beholding his glory. And that overflows into a life of thanksgiving. It overflows into a life of now changed motivations and purposes. So that whatever you do, whatever it is, the art that you create, the sport that you play, the buildings that you design, the way that you nurse people back to health in hospitals, the way you take care of your kids, the way that you prepare and teach the Bible, the way that you're unemployed if that's a season that you're in, whatever it is, in our retirement, all of these things we do to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. I think it was, um, I think it was Johann Sebastian Bach that at the end of each of his compositions, he would write those three letters, S, D, G. This beautiful composition. And at the end, reminding all of this, though, the means by which this has happened, the way all these notes have been put together, are meant to stir sola Deo Gloria in us. This is what the reformers were wanting to get back to, that it wasn't, it wasn't the priesthood, clergy, it wasn't Rome, it wasn't the Pope, it wasn't any of these things, but it was the glory of God. And this is important for us as Protestants in the room to remember, remember because we constantly need to be reformed. My greatest threat to sola Deo Gloria is not a pope in Rome. It's the pope in my home. <laughs> I'm the pope. I, I, I get to decide these things. Isn't, isn't that true? Oh, we've rejected, we've rejected that. We're, we're all set now. No, we're not. We've just traded popes. We've just traded authorities. We've rejected one and taken on a whole different one. Trust me, Protestants have all kinds of popes. And so we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat, in great need. But thankfully, we have a great God with great glory, rich in mercy. May we worship him this morning. If you're not a Christian, that first step of worship is just to admit all these things. It's just to admit that I've, I've really just lived life apart from God's glory. I'm seeking my own, whether that's insecurity or pleasure or comfort or fame or whatever it is. It's just admitting that. It's admitting that the greatest offense, the greatest sin that be, could be committed is really what our parents did in the garden. I want to be like God. And just admitting our sinfulness in that and receiving his grace through faith in Christ. And that leads us to a life of solo Deo Gloria. May that be the day for you today. Christians, for us, 
It's the same, it's the same response, right? This, this, this act of, of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone, is not a one-off deal. It's, it's a continual repetition. This is the treadmill, if you will, of, of spiritual maturity. It's a deeper understanding as we spend time in God's word of the richness of his grace to us and how that filters into all the little nooks and crannies of our life, ways that we haven't understood before. It increases our faith, right? We pray this prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I have faith, make my faith stronger. It helps us worship Jesus in the right ordering way. It stirs our affections for him. It lessens our affections for lesser things so that we can live sola deo gloria, all for the glory of God. And in those times where we don't, in those times where we fail, in those times where we sin, still, what do we do in those moments? Shame, guilt, walk away, try to seek my own glory, try to clean myself up. No, I come right back to the very beginning again. I go back to God's word. I need God's grace again. I need to see that again. I need to receive that again. I need my faith built up again. I need to walk in the light of Christ again. We never leave the good news of the gospel because our hope is always in the glory of God. And so let's come to the table this morning and be reminded again, these means of grace, these great doctrines of grace that we have studied over the last five weeks, these pillars as, as we've called them of the faith, um, that they happened in the Reformation and that that was the anniversary was the occasion for uh, doing the series but all it is is really just teaching biblical Christian doctrine, the foundations of that. And so I hope, my hope is that it has stirred our affections for, for Jesus this morning, that it has caused us to stand in awe of him, that it has helped us to realize that the things that we pursue are like withering grass in the end. The good news is in light of God's glory, we can still pursue these things, but it is glory who injects actually purpose and meaning into them. We can work now the same work we were doing, but it's a different kind of motivation and purpose. It changes the way we approach our work. It changes the way we approach recreation. It changes the way we rest and what we find rest in. God's glory permeates all of life. And so let's come to the table together, receive bread and wine, reminded that it was Christ who provided all this for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. If you're a follower of Jesus today, um, you're welcome to the table. You're welcome to the table. If you're, if you're not a Christian, um, this meal is for his followers. We would encourage you to take Jesus this morning, receive the bread of life, Jesus himself, and then join us at the table. Let me pray.